there. This is the A Lot to Say podcast, a conversation-based project focused on unconventional career paths and the projects that consume us. I'm your host, Gary Williams, or Gaz, as many call me. And A Lot to Say is part of the Alt Project's family of content, uh, obsessing about the overlap between creativity, technology, and culture. I'm fortunate to spend my days working alongside technologists, artists, researchers, and people who just generally give a damn about the world we live in. And I'm very lucky to be able to hear of some incredible career journeys over that time from some really inspiring people. So I am particularly energized by the projects that I hear people are experimenting and tinkering on along the way. And I thought, you know what, it's time to put these stories out there with the A Lot to Say podcast project. I can't wait for you to hopefully discover some new and lesser known stories about the things people get wrapped up in and what led them to this point. This is A Lot to Say. Welcome to episode 12 of A Lot to Say. Uh, my guest is Rachel Newman. She's um, recently founded Working Theory Angels. It's a, it's a new angel investment network designed to mobilize more investment into early stage startups and uh, basically attract new investors to the space. Um, I love uh, catching up with Rachel, um, which happens periodically, but you know, some more of her background is she's been head of startups in Australia and New Zealand for Amazon Web Services. And she's a strategic advisor and investor to a number of founders and their early stage companies. Uh, she's a partner in Startmate, which is Australia's best technology accelerator. And also, um, she's part of the board at Startup Australia. Uh, another fun fact, she actually serves on the Council of Trustees for the National Gallery of Victoria, affectionately known as the uh, NGV. So how do I know Rachel? Um, I've gotten to know her a bit more over the last few years, and it was it was really her talk as part of a Fuck Up Nights Melbourne event in 2018, I think, where we got to know each other a bit more. Um, yeah, it was an incredible talk for a for a room full of strangers and uh, it was just a privilege to have her tell her story, a, a, a relatively private um, story mixed in with um, uh, roles and you know, responsibilities as part of our uh, working life as well as parenthood. So a bit of that overlap and we touch on that in the uh, in the talk in this episode. But I always enjoy our fleeting interactions. I, I really admire her approach. I love her her focus on the customer in everything that you produce and um, generally just the the way she uh, operates within the ecosystem. She's a great guiding, guiding influence for many people. So what do we explore in the chat? Uh, look, we, we discuss many things, but look, a career that takes curvy winding paths and uh, in particular her own unconventional career path into startups and technology, which is a, a fantastic story. Uh, she also talks about creating opportunities for more people to get involved in any capacity. Um, and I really like the way she articulates it. So it's fantastic. So without further ado, um, and I'm pretty cognizant of the fact that I say that before launching into every um, episode, but this is a lot to say with Rachel Newman. All right. Well, welcome to a lot to say podcast, Rachel Newman. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I know that you've um, had a significant amount of, I guess, public engagements and experiences, uh, albeit online or via via Zoom or various podcasts and that, but how are you finding um, the current state and how has that been as a period of evaluation for you? So, listen, I think like for many people, this period has been 
um, you know, while I think so difficult for many people, and I, I, what I don't want to do is minimize at all uh, how many people have been suffering, whether it's, you know, physically and medically, uh, emotionally and psychologically or economically. Um, I do think for those who are less affected directly, this has been an opportunity for some really deep reflection and identifying what matters and therefore what changes we can make in our lives to support the things that matter most. I know for me personally, um, I before planes were literally grounded, I was traveling every single week and that had just become normal, you know, week on, week out for me and probably didn't come under that much uh, prosecution. And I think now that I haven't been traveling, one, I, it's, it's amazing to see what I've been able to fill that time with, mostly around, you know, quality interactions with my kids, with my partner, um, time in the garden or with my chickens. Um, but also it allowed me to realize how I can still do my work and form deep relationships with customers or, um, you know, partners or peers without having to physically share space. And so, you know, it's my hope with all of us coming out of this is that we don't forget some of the valuable lessons and opportunity that this time has given us. Um, and as we reemerge and kind of go back to, quote, real life, that mm. it would be a shame if the future looks exactly like it did before. I think that would be a wasted opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree. And look, it's a sentiment um, conveyed by many of the guests on the podcast, um, as well as, you know, many of our interactions um, across the ecosystem. So um, we're certainly not alone in that regard. It would be a shame to waste it, um, the period of reflection and, um, you know, the want to capitalise on that for the future in positive ways. Um, mm. And look, today we're talking about, I guess, twofold, unconventional career paths and then um, projects in a matter of speech. So, Look, it's it's a little bit uh, meta also, being that um, you have your own career journey, but your involvement um, externally would be meeting with a massive amount of startup and technology company founders. So you would hear numerous, numerous stories. And, and by the same token, many of the people that you would engage with in that sort of advisory or mentorship capacity w- would have had some not, such, not so straight lines towards where they've gotten. Do you want to give a bit of an overview on how you engage with um, with these emerging founders, companies, people, and uh, and what you've noticed? Yeah, and you know this is actually perfect timing because literally not an hour ago I had a call with a brilliant woman who is actually part of the Startmate Fellowship Program, which is designed for people who are looking to transition their careers out of traditional industries into the startup space. Um, and she reached out to me because we have a similar background. Um, and I've made a similar leap and, um, you know, she was asking, you know, some, I I don't want to call it career advice, but I guess that's where the conversation ended up going. And it's so funny because, um, I think that one of the things that I reflected to her is I want you to think about any person that you really respect or any company that's gone on to do extraordinary things. And I want you to, um, you know, think about what that story is. And like very rarely do you hear from an incredible company and the founder gets up and said, you know, I had a very clear vision for 20 years, exactly how I would do this. And this is the plan that I put in place and I followed it exactly and methodically. Like, that's just not how real life works. Real life works is that there is a series of decisions that you make and they take you down curvy, windy paths. And some of them have dead ends and you back up and some of them lead you to areas you never thought you'd be in. And I remember a friend in college once, um, 
when I was feeling a little bit low about my career because I felt that I was following some non-traditional career paths. And, um, mm. you know, I went to Stanford as an undergrad. And so some people around me were following very traditional paths. And I was feeling like, am I a loser that I don't have a very clear both vision and an execution of a clear vision? And he said to me, you never pick up a biography of someone extraordinary. And again, you know, she or he knew exactly what they were going to do and just executed. What you're yeah. doing right now, Rachel, is you're writing the middle chapters. And so every time I get a little um, deflated or I lose my confidence around what the heck am I doing with my life, I just <laughs> remind myself that I'm writing the middle chapters. So uh, yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how this book is going to end. The only thing I know is how it started. Uh, and then, yeah, there are lots of wild adventures in between. Um, yeah. Well, look, I, I mean, I touched on in the intro about, um, I, I guess, the the things that you've um, been involved in, but obviously the, there's so much more under the hood. When you talked about unconventional, um, I, I guess, pathways initially um, at Stanford, so what were you stu studying and, and what was piquing your in interest primarily? Yeah. So when I went to Stanford, first of all, you know, just to remind listeners that in the United States, we tend to have more of a liberal arts education system. So we don't go to school necessarily with a career in mind and it's not vocational based. You know, my partner here, for example, when she was 17, knew she wanted to be a doctor and you go to school to be a doctor and then you come out and be a doctor. Now, on a side note, she, of course, now is running Uber Eats for Asia. So she didn't exactly follow a conventional yeah. uh, life path either. Yeah. But um, I, I went in actually not knowing what I was going to study. And Stanford's one of those places where they don't allow you to declare your major for the first two years. You have to take a wide variety of courses um, across all different departments before you're allowed to pick. And I just, I cannot tell you how grateful I am that that system was the one in which I was educated because, first of all, it allowed me to really find what fired me up intellectually um, and, you know, where my passion was. And then it allowed me to uh, just dabble in lots of areas that, you know, weren't necessarily my passion, but how cool that I got to study. So I'll give you an example. I, I took a course at Stanford around the linguistics of hip hop culture. Um, I took a course around um, Hindu goddesses and, you know, Japanese language and I'm just, I'm grateful for the diversity of classes I was able to take. What I ended up landing on was I actually self-designed my major within the urban studies department. And urban studies, most people consider is kind of the built environment. That's like urban planning or architect, excuse me, architecture. But actually there is a big social element to urban studies. And so I looked at um, specifically how technology uh, impacts the social fabric of communities. And that became... A passion of mine because here I am in Silicon Valley. I'm in Stanford, one of the wealthiest institutions in the world, if not the country. And just a few blocks away was East Palo Alto, where we had one of the highest murder per capita rates, very low income. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I saw is on my side, it literally the train tracks, my side of the train tracks, we had every access to technology resources. We were building the technology and resources of the country. And just a few blocks away, you had students who had no access to technology. And how can we expect for this country um, and for individuals to have the opportunity to have an equal impact on society if they don't have access to some of the basic resources? And you know, recognizing that technology was actually one of those essential resources that was going to be even more important as time went on. So 
that was a long-winded way of me saying that's what I studied. I studied um, the early uh, the early kind of kernels of human computer interaction, which we now know was kind of the basis for machine learning and AI, um, mm, and then yes. how technology um, impacted societies based on back then we called it the digital divide um, and how technology actually uh, helped to build the social fabric as well as the built environment around us. Um, yeah. So it, yeah, it turns out that I ended up kind of in the field in which I studied, but that doesn't always happen with Americans. And like I said, I took a few twists and turns uh, before I got back here. Incredible. I mean, it's um, it is interesting. I mean, I operate um within the as we both do, you know, within the the technology ecosystem in different different ways, and and um, you know, you, you probably said this. I mean, I I struggle to even define uh, what it is uh, to you know my my family, etc. So that's another story in itself. But um, but what I have sort of noticed um, particularly with people uh, entering into roles or potentially. Um, companies advertising for them are these, you know, I guess career paths that, that if people had entered into those fields of study and progressed through them, then they would be in demand at this point in time. Um, so I'm talking about, you know, if, um, if there's a want for particular companies to have, you know, user experience professionals, mm. then they may seek out someone with a background in psychology as opposed to someone who's just quickly dipped into it and come from a graphic design background or anthropologists or so on. So I'm sure you would have recognized through your journey um, many people who have had stories just like that, including, you know, one that just came to mind, Didier Elzinger, formerly running a film company and now yeah. running Culture Amp. Well, and I, I think that you hit on such an important point, Gary, and that is like what we know, and I think Singularity University put out some stat, which is like 80% of the jobs that are going to be important by... I, I unfortunately don't know what year, call it five or 10 years are unknown to us right now. And so there is no possible way that through a vocational based education system, we can prepare people for the jobs of the future. The only thing we can do is um, teach people how to be curious, how to be hypothesis driven in their problem solving, how to seek out and work with diverse people and opinions um, and how to blend, you know, creativity and data there is like literally no point. I think, you know, sometimes I even think about teaching people to code. Like we can, like I have a nine-year-old son right now. I can teach him to code and he goes to code camp and he loves that. Um, but truthfully, by the time he is looking for a career, we're probably going to be living in a no-code world. We already exist in so many areas with no-code tools and products. Um, yeah. And so actually... I'm fine with him learning to code because it creates neuroplasticity, because it helps him to think about symbolic systems, because it helps him to think about language translation and um, elegance and problem solving, but it's not the code that I want him to learn. And so as long as we remember that with education, that is the tube through which we are learning, it, the, the content itself is not as relevant as it used to be. Um, you know, at Stanford, there was this amazing um, major called symbolic systems, which, you know, you don't see many job ads saying, you know, highly, highly desired a degree in symbolic systems. Like, what the heck does that mean? Hmm. But to your point, Gary, it was a mix of, you know, some computer science, some philosophy, some linguistics, you know, it was really multidisciplinary. Um, and I, a lot of those graduates ended up going into tech 
um, because it was actually that interdisciplinary skill set and that type of thinking that well positioned them to design new products that had never been built before, create technologies that are new and novel. And so I'm all for like liberal arts education and teaching our people, our, our young people, as well as reskilling folks, how to think and learn and how to work together in teams yeah. rather than the actual education itself. I mean, I, I might be putting you slightly on the spot here, but it's intended to, I guess, I, I would love to know your viewpoint on it. Um, are we paralyzing our youth a little bit um, with, I mean, um, you know, there's purported to be, you know, decent levels of anxiety amongst young people, yeah. um, which is, you know, it's perpetuated by many things, um, obviously, large, large scale societal factors. And geez, we've had a few in 2020. Um, we sure have. But, but also, you know, consumption of media, um, you know, social media norms, um, perception yeah. and, and so on. And and ourselves, not that we're necessarily um, the same age, but, it, you know, roundabouts. And we, we have the benefit of hindsight in many ways. And also, um, yeah, look, it wasn't, look, social media yeah. wasn't, as, well, it wasn't as difficult back back then as well, by the same token, to distract us. So yeah. um, how do you feel about yeah, that yes. for the role of youth? <laughs> The answer is yes. I think that we are really getting it wrong. And listen, I I could speak for hours on my like fairly radical and progressive views of education, and that's with no disrespect to the incredible educators that we have right now. And actually, I want to just give a shout out to anyone in education who has weathered the storm over the last couple of months has been a feat, nothing short of a miracle. Yes. Um, and so, you know, with all due respect to them, I think systemically we need to think about what our education system looks like and how it's setting us up for the future. Um, if you think about some of the, you know, we know that school largely, um, the, the structure that it's in right now worked really well when we were factory workers um, or worked on farms. And if you think about uh, adults, we are voting um, with both our behaviors and again, certainly in COVID, that we don't want to work in rigid nine to five environments, that we want to have flexibility and autonomy that we want to be able to work from home or work from an office, that we want to be able to team for success, that we want our um, worth or our success to be measured in outcomes, not in FaceTime. And yet we're not giving our children the same um, ability or flexibility. And so like, I feel like we're learning so much and applying a fair amount of change to how we are, you know, the future of work for adults I don't know if we're applying it at the same rate uh, to our children. And so I feel like they are slightly disadvantaged. And so we as a society are progressing quickly. The workplace is progressing less quickly. And I feel like education is progressing even less quickly than that. So mm. I don't want to get us down a rabbit hole. So we should probably change up topics before no, you get I, me stuck here. <laughs> no, I did put you on the spot, but it is, I mean, you know, we, we both have um, children. We, we um, you know, we, we're trying to envision, I guess, what the future looks like for them a little bit as well. And um, just pause for thought really. But with, um, look, I want to, it's interesting. I mean, we're going to dive into, I guess, the numerous things you've been involved with um, over time, including, I guess, painting a clearer picture for, listeners that may not be involved um, within, you know, creating startups or launching ventures um, or even getting them off the ground or know how to proceed with that. Um, I did notice in one of the um, the events you appeared on this week, which is part of the Blackbirds Giant series, and talking about e-commerce, et cetera, but um, you got labelled with the label Tough Love. <laughs> Do you want to tell, tell us about that and how you've garnered that reputation? 
<laughs> oh, you know what? Uh, when I worked at Bain, we always had a saying about you should know what's written on the back of your T-shirt. Um, and Tip just let me know exactly what's written on the back of my T-shirt. Um, yeah, I thought that was quite funny. Uh, but I guess I'll take that as a badge of honor and I'll translate it into what I hope it means. Yeah. So what I hope that it means is that when someone has a conversation with me, they know that I will shoot straight with them, that I'll be completely transparent um, with, um, you know, any like reactions or thoughts, or I don't want to call it advice, but like experience that I've had that may be helpful. Um, and that, that honesty is comes from a place of caring. So I hope that's what the love part means because that yeah. is true. And I, I feel like the greatest gift that we can give someone, and especially if it's that dynamic of like a mentor-mentee relationship, um, is just first acknowledging that that's a human being, that she or he is throwing themselves, their energy, their blood, sweat, and tears into um, something that they're passionate about and that they've chosen a very difficult journey and acknowledging that first with like love and respect. Um, and then any comment that follows is there in pursuit to set them up for success, not to knock them down. And so I remember I had one interaction with a Startmate founder once, and it was pretty brutal, I'll be honest. Like it was a bit of a bloodbath um, in my conversation. And afterwards she said, that was really hard to hear but no one has had the guts to say it to me. Yeah. And what I feel grateful about is that founder has since gone on to make incredible progress in her company. And she has recently reached out um, to have a conversation with me about possibly uh, investing. And I feel very lucky that that tough love that I gave her, the tough um, had enough love that she would still want me quote on her team. Um, and so I do hope that, you know, I'm a New Yorker. Unfortunately, I'm extremely honest and direct, but I hope that everyone understands that comes from a place of deep respect and love. Yeah. Do Do you think on that? Um. Do you think you're un, Is that are you unfairly labeled with that, or or some similar, um, definition by the fact that you are American, as opposed to the fact that we're not used to receiving that direct feedback in Australia, perhaps. Yeah, I think I think there is a cultural difference here um, that, I don't know, is that an advantage or a disadvantage that I'm so direct? Oh, um, just, you know, a it also, just a difference, yeah. <laughs> it, but it also, it also comes from a place of, um, I definitely know that that's how I would want to be treated. And you know what? It's important for me to recognize that not everyone wants to be treated how I would want to be treated. So my default position is, I'm going to act in the spirit of honesty and transparency because that's how I want someone to shoot with me. Um, sometimes I get it wrong. And I think that just means we're kind of incompatible in a mentor-mentee kind of relationship. Um, but I definitely know that I personally, it's very important to me to in, in my life to try and know where people stand, have very few surprises around that. And so those are values that are important for me to receive. And so I, I start with putting them out there um, in the way that I behave as well. Yeah, no, certainly. Oh, look, that, that's very apparent also in um, 
you know, I guess when I mentioned before about you doing, you know, plenty of uh, webinars at the moment, but obviously public engagement events or um, podcast episodes and so on. So what, what absolutely shines through, which is what you continually advocate for is, um, you know, building customer focused um, products. So inherent um, customer experience that you're advocating for and, and, you know, your passion for helping, you know, companies scale and, and increase their impacts, not by presuming, um, but by asking customers what they would actually want. So, I mean, with I, I guess the radical honesty does come into play when um, having these talks with, uh, you know, owners and founders who are developing products and their businesses. But how has that manifested over the years in your sort of continual advocacy to think about what the customer wants? Mm, that's a really good question, guys. And to be honest, I thought when you were talking about ra- radical honesty, I thought you were going to allude to uh, that fuck up night where I talked about my breast milk for an hour. Um, so I'm <laughs> glad we're not going there. Um, I, I was, I was. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll go to this in a sec. I mean, that's it's um the origins of when we first met properly. Um, that's right. And what a way breast, to meet. Breast milk is right? on the agenda for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, look, yeah, um, the like, empathy, I, empathy with the customer, essentially. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? I don't think I've ever um, drawn the connection, but now that you have, I think that it makes a lot of sense. And that is, at the end of the day, this is all a people business, right? Even mm. if you're selling sprockets or water bottles or technology, um, you're actually not selling those things. You're selling a solution to a human pain point. And the more that we can just remember that on the other end of your product or your service or your technology, no matter how self-service it is, no matter how low touch your engagement model is, there is a human being that has some sort of pain and your product is literally nothing unless it solves that pain. And so I think that's the same, like my product when I'm working with founders is I'm here to help you. Um, And so if I'm not identifying what their pain is and providing a solution to that, then I am fired as a product, right? And so I actually think that they're one in the same. Um, And so whether you're dealing with a human in a one-to-one interaction, whether you're dealing with a cohort like in Startmate, um, whether you are helping someone with their product, it always comes down to what is the pain um, or the you know the, the problem that you are trying to solve, and how can you engender the most um, you know effective and elegant solution to that? And unfortunately, you can't just do it once. You have to continue to do it and do it in the same way that my relationships with um, founders that I mentor, that I advise, those continue to evolve over time. Um, I definitely can't be just the same mentor with the same advice over and over to the same person. Yeah. That's a relationship that needs to constantly get feedback. And we both need to, you know, for lack of a better word, iterate how we show up with each other. Um, and that's exactly the same thing with the product. You can't just build it once. You need to continue to iterate it based on a very rapidly changing customer need. Yeah. No, oh, look, that's fantastic. I mean, I did see the, um, I did see the talk you gave for the Blackbird um, Giants program with Tip um, from Blackbird, and essentially you were essentially conveying that you know customers are terrible designers. It's the truth. Um, I think the I think the analogy you used is that you know if you ask a customer what they want, they may say they want a, a red button in the top corner, but what mm. they're what they are telling you is they just want an easier way to process their 
their cart payment on an e-commerce yeah. platform. As they just want to know what to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this, this is where we sometimes there's this paradox of choice where we think um, customers need like all the choices in the world. And it's like, actually, they want as few choices as possible. They want you to tell them how can they be successful in what they are trying to achieve. And so yeah. as long as you know what are they trying to achieve and then you figure out success from A to B looks like this, then actually they don't want a million options. They want the one that's going to get them from A to B in the most elegant, quickest, most efficient way. Um, yeah. yeah. And there, there are lots of places where I help people think about this in their product. So one of it, one of them is, you know, just the feature request. How do you take customer feedback and turn that into the feature they want? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things that I talk a lot about, I call it kind of choice channel architecture, which is a wanky name, but what it basically means is when you're trying to get customers, um, let's just use like a customer service example. Like if you want them to contact you, most people think, you know what they want? They want to be able to call us and email us and text us and chatbot us. And the answer is they actually don't want all of those things. They want the channel that is right for them right now. And so for example, if you have someone who is saying, help 911, my house is on fire, you actually don't want to give them email as a channel because mm. email is notoriously asynchronous and there's a time delay between when that email can be read and responded to. If someone's house is on fire, you want to give them a real-time interaction on the phone. Likewise, if someone is calling and says, you know, hey, you know, I'm really curious about your company. Can you tell me about how you had that idea? That's super interesting. You probably don't want them calling um, because that's a very expensive resource to have a real-time channel um, and an email with a 24-hour SLA is sufficient. So this is where I help people to think about what is your customer trying to achieve? What is his or her emotional, psychological state? And what is their true need? And then how do you actually nudge them towards the path that will be most effective and most successful in them getting their needs met? Yeah, no... Oh, amazing. Oh, look, as a as a frame of reference for people listening today, so at the moment, um, you, you sort of have, I guess you call it numerous roles, but really it's just it's all part of the thing. Um, again, as I said, I can barely explain it to, say, my parents. So, <laughs> you know, probably used to. Everything sort of feeds into another. But, um, you know, at the moment, you're head of startups at AWS. You're also um, a board member at uh, Startup Australia, where you're a former chair of that board. Um, you're a strategic advisor and investor to a number of founders and early stage companies. You're you're developing um, a new angel investment um, platform called Work, Working Theory Angels. But um, yeah. you've done you've done a lot. But you also referenced before about uh, working at Bain and Company, which was uh, management consulting. So mm-hmm. um, do you want to? Tell us just a little bit about how you got into that space. And that, that's obviously pre-moving to Australia as well. So how did you get into that space? You're, you're yeah. advising on technology, um, private equity, retail, and so on. How did you yeah. find your way into there? And then, and then what was the evolution after that? So, I mean, I have an even crazier story of how I got to Bain. So the, the jump from Bain to technology is not nearly as interesting as my jump from working in refugee camps to management consulting. And so um, when I was, my first job out of Stanford was working for a company called New Schools Venture Fund. And that was a impact venture fund that was started by John Doerr, who's one of the uh, lead investors um, at Kleiner Perkins, a kind of Bay Area staple um, VC fund. And he basically said, our public education system in the US is completely broken. 
Um, there, it is unfair that the kids in our most failing school districts have a higher incidence of, you know, being arrested, um, having, you know, lack of opportunities, et cetera. So he said, what if we took the same kind of investment thesis and approach that I have in my tech investments, applied it to education um, and see how we can apply a business model to solve a social problem. And this was an extremely influential experience in my life, not just because it was my first job and I worked for this incredible CEO and she continues to be, um, you know, a real like beacon and inspiration to me. Um, but it, it, for the first time, and I was very kind of social impact inclined uh, prior to graduating Stanford, it was the first time that I started to think about how can you use the rigor um, and kind of the discipline and proven models of business and apply it to social opportunities. And after a few years at New Schools Venture Fund, through a random, uh, a series of serendipitous, serendipitous uh, events, I ended up in the refugee camps along the Thai Burmese border. And that was, that's a protracted refugee situation where the folks there had been in camps for um, 25 plus years. So there are literally generations that only knew um, what it was like to live in these refugee camps. Um, and I, originally I was just there to do some research. And because I had had this experience at New Schools Venture Fund, I thought, okay, what would it look like if we applied a business model to actually improve the health situation in some of these camps? Um, and I, I looked at the school model. So at New Schools, we invested in something called charter management organizations, which are entities that have a number of charter schools. Um, and I looked at how they were able to provide services and allocate resources really effectively by having this back office service and having these sat satellite schools. Um, and so I actually pitched this idea to the UN High Commission for Refugees of how we can adopt this operational model that I had learned in education reform and apply it to the distribution of health services on the refugee camps. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was an amazing experience, um, both living there, catching dengue fever, um, <laughs> being involved in a pretty, yeah. like a pretty innovative um, project. Uh, and actually, while I was in the camps, it made me realize there are so many people who care so deeply about the problems here, but the actual effectiveness of the various NGOs and how they work together or rather didn't work together um, was really disconcerting. And so I said to myself, you know what, Rachel, you need to come back to these public health situations when you are the boss, like literally, like you need to be the head of the UN. And so I thought to myself, what do I need to do to be the head of the UN? I probably need to get a master's in public health and I probably need to go to business school. Mm -hmm. So I left the camps and I moved to New York and I went to Columbia to get my master's in public health with an MBA. And so in my head, I thought I'm going to be a public health leader and I'm going to have this MBA as like a proof that I can be effective and have this, you know, business rigor. Um, and so I did both of those programs simultaneously. And what I found actually was that the business courses actually spoke to me um, even more than the public health stuff. Those public health issues and uh, my expertise is in uh, infectious diseases, uh, specifically around diarrheal diseases, because they're the number one killer of children under five. Mm -hmm. And they actually, through non-technical um, solutions, can make a huge impact. Um, but what I found is that in public health, I was surrounded by brilliant people who were passionate, but somewhat impotent to solve some of these problems. And on the business side, I saw really sharp, smart people who can execute anything. 
Um, and if we could kind of move some of those tools to the public health space, that would be really amazing. Yeah. So I kind of surprised myself because when I graduated, well, I guess it's not a surprise. If you know anyone who goes to grad school in America, and especially two degrees, you graduate with about $250,000 of debt. And I could either go work in the UN or I can work for a management consulting firm and pay off my debt very quickly. Uh, but I also thought about management consulting as it is like what residency is to medical school. This is where yeah. I can show everything I learned in business school and actually put it to work. And I kind of thought lots of people think you go into management consulting for 18 months, you get your training and then off you go. I actually loved it. It was brilliant. It has formed, again, a very foundational set of skills and mental frameworks for everything that I do. And it's been an invaluable experience. I've met some of the best people, uh, you know, in my life during my time at Bain. And just the, what it, what it also allowed me to do is work across so many different industries on so many different projects. It actually honed my ability to pattern detect. And now as I think about myself as an investor um, in early stage companies, and I look for patterns of success. I think that um, my consulting has helped me in that. That was a long answer. I'm sorry, Gary. No, no, I would, uh, no, I love it. I love it because I, because obviously, um, look, I'm finding out so much about people through this podcast and, and the interviews, but obviously sometimes you just, you just jump to a point um, assuming that the conversation was to you there, but then you, you get this sudden wave of all the, all these other things that have eventuated. I mean, um, you've sort of breezed over it, but also mentioned, you know, you were in New York, but that's where you met your partner at the time as well? Yes. Yes. Um, and I'll, I'll give you the context also. Um, I don't know if this has been great luck uh, because of the learning or great unluck, but, you know, I was in Stanford, uh, a student there, kind of in the heart of the tech world during the dot-com bubble bursting. And then I was in New York City at the height of the GFC between 2007, 2009. Um, so in both of my education settings, I've had these front row seats to like massive changes um, in our world and economy. But yes, uh, back to the love story. I indeed met my, my Australian partner, now wife, uh, in New York City while we were both getting our MBAs. Yeah. And so you've ended up in um, Silicon Valley um, with Bain and then was it simply, obviously you progressed from Bain um, onwards with, with positive experiences and many, many learnings along the way. Um, was it moving into a role at Eventbrite that eventually next? Yeah. So what had happened, I was actually working for Bain here in Melbourne um, and there was an opportunity for me to transfer. There's lots of, one of the great advantages of working for a big consulting firm is that there's tons of global mobility and opportunities to work abroad. And um, I kept coming back to technology as my love. And I think the thinking was, hey, go work in the Silicon Valley Bain office. And then when you come back in a year or two, um, we can help to like build out this tech practice at Bain um, because you know Australia was still a few years behind. And so I went over to San Francisco with my partner and at that point, my two-year-old son. Um, and I was working with some of our big technology clients in Silicon Valley. And again, serendipitously met the founders of Eventbrite. And we got to just geeking out uh, around a conversation around customer experience and how that can, I mean, I think I just exposed how cool I am at a dinner party and that, you know, I quickly, I, I had to talk about diarrheal diseases or customer experience. <laughs> um, and luck, luckily for me, I, did, I 
I held off on the diarrhea talk uh, at this dinner party. But yeah, yeah we, we got to talking about customer experience. And at Bain, I had been, um, you know, deeply working in uh, some of our MPS work, which is the net promoter system that Bain is famous for. Um, and I had been applying that to some of our big customers, um, you know, on the enterprise side of town. And in my conversation with the founders of Eventbrite, we realized that there was an opportunity to use some of these tools in a startup, because the thing about startups is everyone thinks about the rocket ship growth and they think that that is a smooth curve, but actually startups tend to grow in step functions. And what happens is on the outside, a startup will get this big injection of capital, call it a series B or a series C raise. And the outside world thinks, oh, they are kicking goals. And on the inside, they are shitting themselves because they're thinking, actually, with this money comes a huge expectation of growth. And what got us here is not going to get us there. And we started having a conversation on how we might want to experiment unlocking the next stage of growth for Eventbrite through a differentiated customer experience. Mm. So that conversation, you know, which went from what are you doing in these big companies? Holy cow, do you think we can do it here? Ah, let's give it a shot, um, is what started my startup career. And that um, eventuated in also an, a corresponding role for Eventbrite in Australia, which which yeah. I guess dovetails into a bit of a more personal experience, which you mentioned before. So, um, I mean, we first met, met each other properly when you spoke at one of our Fuck Up Nights events. I um, It wasn't so much the story which was incredible and very, very um, raw and honest, but it was certainly the way you approached it. I, I would love to know your thoughts on sharing a very real and open story for a very large audience of <laughs> absolute strangers. But, but if you wanted to share a tiny bit of it um, where, where appropriate, go for it. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I was actually so grateful for that opportunity. I didn't realize how cathartic it would be for me to kind of come out and just talk about some of the the challenges and tribulations of those early months as being both a parent and the managing director of Eventbrite in Australia. But um, first of all, I just want to say, I I, I don't think I get like brownie points um, for naturally, you know, being open. I think that one, that comes easy to me again. I mean, probably because I just don't have a lot of filters in place. Um, But also because I come from a place of, you know, privilege with like a ton of psychological safety. And I have never um, felt threatened by being exactly who I am um, and being very kind of out and open about that. Hmm. So one, that's why fuck up nights are easy for people like me because I always kind of put it out there and it's never come back to bite me. But um, I recognize that not everyone can always be or always has had the opportunity to be so open and authentic. And my hope is that everyone finds a place in this world where they can truly be themselves. But in Fuck Up Nights specifically, I talked about, um, as I alluded to earlier, just a lot of breast milk trials and tribulations. But really what the story was about was how I really fucked up in that when I had, uh, when I gave birth to my daughter, who's now five, when I gave birth to her in 2015 in January, Um, I had only been in the managing director role for a few months and I just was not ready to hand over the reins. Like I I hadn't built up the team. I hadn't built up the business and I didn't feel confident that it could just, I could step out and take my mat leave and it could just run. Um, First of all, 
I've now come to reflect on that as being some sort of like superwoman complex where um, one, I had this very false assumption that I and only I could do something. I now know that I tend to surround myself by brilliant people. And when given the chance, they can all step up to the plate and do incredible things. Um, and two, I don't need to measure my worth by being completely overextended in a million different directions. Um, and that I had permission. I wish that I, I wish myself now could tell myself then that I had permission to step out and be the parent that I wanted to be in those early months. And also, quite frankly, if everything went to shit, I should have had faith in myself that I'd be able to clean up the pieces when I came back. And so the I, I told a, a series of stories where attempting to both be a, uh, a breastfeeding parent in the early months postpartum while also trying to birth another baby, which is you know a startup business here in Australia, were wholly incompatible led to some pretty hilarious stories. But to be honest, um, they led to some really deep wounds that, um, you know, I, I wish I didn't self-inflict. Uh, they, they created, you know, challenges for me and my partner, which we've since, you know, overcome, but that was a very trying time for our relationship. Yep. They, um, you know, self-inflicted wounds. Uh, I don't want to call them regrets because I, I tend not to have those, but I had wished that my you know, earlier months with my new bub would have been a little different. I wish I would have enjoyed it more um, and had more time to be present. So, you know, everything in hindsight and the only advice or the only thing I hope in sharing those stories is that people um, don't make those mistakes that I did. Yeah, look, we don't ever film the um, the events, you know, so as to just put them out there for people to consume, I guess, passively. Um, we like having them in the moment. But yeah, it was certainly one that a lot of people really, you know, just really resonated with. So look, I'm glad you enjoyed it, so to speak, and dredging <laughs> up. But also, you know, just like this episode, it gives um, pause for thought in, I guess, uh, you know, thinking back on all the things that have been a part of your life, making up you who you are. Um, yeah. I mean, moving on from there, we're, we're getting towards um, sort of the end. So um, moving on from Eventbrite, um, so you, look, you've had a number of roles. Again, you, you're very, very much um, a big, big part of the Australian startup technology ecosystem. Um, that's manifested in different ways. You're a founding board member at LaunchVic, which is a um, government-listed startup agency. You're, you're you know, board member, former chair of the board at um, Startup Australia. You're a mentor with Startmate Accelerator Program. Um, uh, you're very used to it. You're, you're working with emerging founders. You're advising them on how to scale and grow their companies. You work at um, AWS, so you're the head of startups engagement there. But for, for people who, I guess, are not as exposed to this world, um, do you want to sort of paint a little picture of what the reality is of this Australian startup technology ecosystem, your role within it, and also how people might, I guess, potentially find a pathway in, um, let's just say, enabling passion projects or emerging ideas? Yeah. So I think that I have been um, so lucky in that I think I, I kind of came into this community at a time where we were starting to um, like all of the raw ingredients were coming together and starting to marinate to get some momentum going. 
Um, and so I've been so lucky that I've been, you know, welcomed into this community that I've had the opportunity to learn from so many incredible people and in my little way, you know, help out. And so if I think about my role, yeah, it, you know, as you mentioned, it does range from kind of that one-to-one to actually trying to impact policy to have a larger impact. Um, I think when I step back and look at myself in the mirror and think, why do I care about this? One, I just love learning and this is what I geek out on. And so there's kind of this like pay to play model, like the more I can help out, the more I can learn, which is, you know, an awesome byproduct of my efforts. Um, But really, like the motivation is even higher. Like I have a nine year old and a five year old and I want them to live in a society that is um, that is just and democratized and held up uh, by um, kind of economies of the future, not economies of the past. I want them to live their best lives, to, um, you know, fulfill their dreams and have build their careers and be able to do that here in Australia, which I personally think is the best country on earth. And so if that is, and I feel unbelievably grateful and indebted to Australia that they have let me come and live here and um, that I get to call this place home, And so how do I make up for that is I build the future or I do my little part to help build the future that I want my children to inherit and to continue to build. And so that is like the true motivation for the work that I do. Now, what are some of the the byproducts of just selfishly helping my kids get the economy that I want them to have (laughs) is I get to empower, help empower people to live their like true and authentic lives. These are those who like don't fit into the mold that can't be employed by a normal company because they're just wired differently because they stay up at night because there is a problem that they need to solve. Um, and so like that's God's work, right? When an individual can pursue her, or his like full purpose Um, If I can have any little part in that, then that is, you know, it's a real honor and a privilege. Mm. So whether that's, you know, giving them some tips along the way, whether that's writing a check in the early stage of their journey, whether that's helping to ensure that the policies that we're passing at the federal level are conducive to more people, um, not just pursuing their dreams, but solving real problems for large and growing markets through innovative business models and technology. like. What a win-win-win. Yeah. What, what other opportunities are there? And I, I know this would have been asked ad nauseum over the years in, you know, whatever, um, I guess, publication or, or um, you know, bloody podcast episode. Um, <laughs> but obvious, obviously investment. Investment, um, if we're talking about companies to raise, et cetera. But what other opportunities are there um, that you see and, and would love to see capitalised on? Um, without leaving you hanging, just to answer it off off the cuff, I mean, I, I'm really interested to find out whether you think that, you know, there's greater opportunities in, say, as we were talking about before, creative industries and technology ecosystem coming together a bit more, um, mm. whether there's a capacity for, you know, projects as opposed to entire companies um, being capitalised on a bit more in, in different ways. Yeah. What, what are the opportunities you see over and above, obviously, um, investment from venture yeah. capital or, or private investment? And I, I realized, Gary, I didn't a- answer the second part of your question, which was how can people get involved? And hopefully this question will or this answer will yeah. kind of um, feed two 
two birds with one scone. Um, but I think to your point, like I, I just, there is an opportunity for everyone to get involved. Like whatever industry you're in, you are going to be either, um, if you have not already, like technology is going to play a major role in how your industry is made up, how it serves customers, how it goes to market. Um, whatever role you're in right now, whether you are directly using technology or not, technology is going to be part of how you do your job. Um, and so I actually think that there is already such a blurring of the lines and it will continue to get even more blurry that there is a space literally for everyone to get involved in the sector because the sector is everything. Um, and, you know, I'll give in a, you mentioned creative arts. Uh, I actually am extremely privileged. I just joined the Council of Trustees at the NGV because in oh, wow. addition to my love for startups, uh, my passion for modern art and my absolute uh, respect and deep admiration for NGV as an institution have kind of come together. Um, and there, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that I get to serve it, you know, in this way. But one of the conversations that I had with the director, Tony Elwood today was how can we continue to use technology to democratize access to what the NGV is, whether that's the art, the collection, the conversations, um, you know, they did an incredible job. Obviously, the, the NGV was closed during COVID, but they did an amazing job engaging um, people, not just in Australia, literally around the world, like trending number one in China and in France and the US, engaging the world in conversations and explorations of art um, and creative expression of others. And I think that, again, in this, in the vein of how do we make sure we don't lose these great things that came out is, you know, the conversation Tony and I had today was those people who did those incredible things need to go back to their day jobs on the 27th of June when the gallery opens up again, which is a, a plug. Everyone should go and visit their local uh, cultural institutions as soon as they're open. Um, but the question is, um, how do we keep that going and how do we continue to build on it? Because that was incredible what the NGV and other like institutions were able to do to share their art with the world. And so I'm just really excited because I think in this moment in time, we are rethinking everything. You know, what is a museum that you can't visit in person? What is art that you can't touch and feel? How does technology allow us all to access something that is literally previously only on a wall in a location behind a door that you need a ticket to. So I'm super excited for technology enabling everything and for everyone to find their role in this new world. Yeah, amazing. I mean, it's, yeah, with with sites who, I guess, yeah, as technology becomes more and more, well, shall we say, invisible, but, you know, the, the experience factor or the emphasis on the user um, becomes more and more apparent. So, look, I'm excited to see where, where it is. Uh, where it heads to and um, how we utilize it. But I, I do want to um, just address one thing, which which also is, I guess, by circumstance, what you've noticed in the past. Um, and you mentioned about existing within, say, the dot-com era um, and then, uh, you know, global financial crisis as well. And then by the same token, we're, we're furthermore in, you know, uh, whether we call it a an existing or emerging crisis this year. Have you thought about that um, much that you sort of will be right amongst sort of three 
large scale world affecting experiences and and does that prepare you better or or do you are you just sort of anticipating it with um a bit more um i guess preparedness yeah listen i think that the only thing constant uh in this world is change and the only thing we know about this change is it's going to become faster and more frequent um and so yeah wow like 2020 what a year so far with bushfires and pandemics and, you know, if we look at the U.S. riots and, um, you know, call to action around very real uh, disparity and discrimination that is happening uh, still today in in this day and time that's um, inexcusable. Um, We know that we're going to have extreme weather situations. We're going to have geopolitical shifts like, man... Uh, the only thing we can do to be prepared for this um, is to go back to first principles around what does it mean to be individually resilient? What does it mean to team well with others? What does it mean to be flexible um, and adaptable? So, you know, we just come full circle to that conversation around education. What do we need to be learning individually? What do we need to be teaching each other. And it's just, I think it's lessons around that because there are very few crystal balls that predicted the year that we've had so far. We're only halfway through it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Or how, or what indeed the rest of the year might entail. Um, wait with bated breath. Look on that edge, on that education piece, just to, I guess, round us off for this episode. And thank you so much. Once again, it's just been an absolute um, treat. I just love finding out all these, all these elements of people's lives is very, very fortunate position, but, um, but it's great because I get to understand a bit more about um, the work that you do and, and why you do it. But, and speaking yeah. of the work, um, so you're working on um, angel investment platform, which is working theory angels. So you've mm-hmm. essentially just launched that out. Um, and, and that has this large educational overlay with it for, um, I guess, a, a, a community or a network um, associated with it. Do you want to tell us a bit more about Working Theory Angels and, sure. um, and and what problems you see that solving? I'm always happy for you to tee up a plug, so this is perfect. I know. Uh, look, no. it, it's perfect. I, I'm actually very pleased with myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> listen, I'll take any opportunity. So, uh, no, well, yeah. I, think, I think, and so sorry to cut you off, but it is also worth um, mentioning. We, we are talking about, I guess, what what the startup or technology ecosystem needs, and angel investment is is a or more angel investment is such a crucial part of it. So I've sort of stolen what you would probably spruik, but that's that's also a reason not to do a blade and plug, but to actually um, dive into a tangible reason why. Yeah, and listen, I think that is the genesis of why um, Working Theory was launched, and it's been a long time coming. Um, what I noticed was a few things. First of all, on one side, founders need access to more capital and early stage is absolutely critical for our ecosystem, especially right now. If we start to anticipate, maybe there'll be a funding crunch. We need to make sure that doesn't happen at the top of the funnel, those super early stages. And that's because in the startup world, we require a certain birth rate uh, because we know that there's a certain death rate. And so if we choke the top because we don't have enough funding, we will screw ourselves. Like we literally will not have the ecosystem and kind of that funnel of successful companies that we need in order for this to become a really viable economic driver for the future of Australia. So it is absolutely critical that we get funding in there. And then I play in this space. And what I noticed over the last few years is that 
folks who have, you know, maybe some money that they want to invest in this um, asset class, just say, Rachel, I don't know how to get started. I don't like, how do I learn how to do this, et cetera. And I realize that there are lots of people who are super smart, but they didn't have the education to have the competence and the confidence to invest themselves. Then I thought, okay, if they got some of that information, then they didn't have access to these deals because, um, you know, there's not like one place where you go shopping for all of the startup deals. And so they're like, how do I have access? And then even if they had access, especially if they're early stage investors and they're just dipping their toes in and they're doing it right, they'll want to write lots of small little checks rather than one big one. And their check size would often not meet the minimum requirement that a founder would want in order to get them on the cap table. So I thought, how do I solve for all of this? And so working theory is looking to address all of those issues at once, which is getting the founders and the startups the money they need. Um, But by bringing more people into the early stage investment space, giving them the skills that they need to be competent and confident, making sure that they have this minimum portfolio size, because what we know statistically is that the return on investment is based more on the number, the quantity of investments you make, not the quantum of money that you invest. And, um, you know, this way, when we pull our capital, uh, we have the ability to get on cap tables of the best companies, hopefully, that I'm able to identify through the various roles that you had rattled off before. So we're super early days. We've gotten amazing response since we launched two weeks ago. Um, And so that's all coming together. And I'm just really excited to bring these amazing humans um, who had previously been interested in, but not investing in the space, bringing them in. And I'm just, you know, excited to be on the journey of more incredible founders uh, and their companies and solving customer problems. Yeah, I'll look at, thank you so much. I mean, it's also the uh, issue of me asking you, what have, what have you got next on the radar? <laughs> but um, No more, no, no yeah. more next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no more next. No, I'm, I'm really excited to see how it eventuates. But look, thank you so much for today. It's, um, it's much, much appreciated. So, um, Thanks, Gary. Look, it's been my pleasure. There's numerous um, things for people to direct their attention towards. Uh, they can follow you on Twitter. I'll, I'll send the details out. Also, um, Working Theory Angels on Twitter. Um, check out Startmate online as well, of which you're a mentor, and I think they just closed their new intake. So we'll see yeah. which um, what cohort eventuates out of that. And then just one last thing, the startup Startmate Fellowship. So you're attracting essentially um, people from the corporate world to apply their skills to emerging technology companies. Yeah, that's right. And then yeah. I'll just say one other thing. If you are listening and you um, are starting a startup, um, everyone now has access to credits on AWS to get started. So if you yep. go to um, Activate, so just Google AWS and Activate, any startup can jump in, get $1,000 of free credits and start building. There is no better way to um, get started than to like literally just get started, just start building. And especially if you know AWS makes it free to get up and running and tinkering, then... Yeah. Um, and you come for the credits and stay for the value. Once you're playing around in the AWS ecosystem, there are lots of people who are there to help you. So yeah, sure. lots of different ways for people to get involved, whether you want to start building, whether you want to transition through a fellowship, whether you have a great company, you want to join, start made as an accelerator. I can't wait to meet you. Yeah, awesome. Rachel, thank you so much once again. Have an amazing day. Awesome. Take care. Thanks, Gary. So that was my chat with Rachel Newman as part of the lot to say. I loved it. Uh, You can find Rachel on Twitter at rnewman6826. 
it's in the show notes. Um, so check it out if you're um, looking to find her. But um, do follow along. And also Working Theory Angels on Twitter is at Working Theory AU. So I've been your host, Gary Williams. And music on this podcast is by my band, Bateman, programmed by our drummer, Gareth Leach. You can follow a lot to say on the Alt Project social media channels at Alt Projects. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Mm-hmm.